All right, here we go. Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. 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 Welcome to Rants with Justin and Joe and Saunders. Rants with Justin and Joe and Saunders. Rants with Justin and Joe and Saunders. There it is. You see? Was that my introduction? Missy, Missy, Dr. Melissa Saunders wanted her own theme song to come up to, so I just created one right there. Uh, This is Rants with Justin and Joe. And today we are honored uh, to have Dr. Melissa Saunders join us. Uh, Melissa Saunders is a great behavior analyst, uh, a great uh, professional, and more importantly, a great person. So uh, we've known her for many years and love spending time with her. I think she's one of the people that I miss uh, tremendously, not going to conferences in the past 14 months and getting to hang out with her. But fortunately for her, she gets to have me call her almost every single day to talk about something. So I'm sure she feels quite lucky that we've uh, bonded over nonstop things over the last year. Um, before she has to introduce herself a little bit, uh, Joe will go over the boring parts of this podcast. Yes, please associate me with the boring parts. Uh, if you're catching this live and you want to ask a question, please use the Q&A option that's down below uh, next to all of the other buttons on Zoom. Uh, if you put it in the chat, we typically miss it because of how difficult it is to monitor it in multiple places. Uh, if you're catching this as the recorded podcast, well, you can't ask any questions. You missed your chance. Uh, come to another live recording, uh, which is free, and you can ask as many questions of the, our wonderful guests as, as you want. If you want any CEUs for this or any of our rants, you can purchase or download your certificate at www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast. You'll just be asked for the opening and closing words. Today's opening word is cupcake. Yes. Cupcake, those sound delicious. Um, Joe did forget one part, which he didn't forget. I just didn't tell him to say one part or we didn't have a discussion about it. If you sign up for our new APFC library, you will get your CUs for this for free because you are a paid member. So I guess not really for free, you paid for membership, but join our APFC library for $9.99 a month. And you get to have uh, the CUs for this podcast and other podcasts and other great opportunities that we have uh, to learn. So with that, we know who uh, Dr. Uh, Melissa Saunders is. Uh, we might call her Melissa. I might call her Saunders because I don't know. I just called her Saunders one day and it stuck. Uh, so, but a lot of people probably don't know who Dr. Melissa Saunders is. They should know who she is, but we're going to give her a chance to introduce herself, which is what she was begging for today was to give her introduction of herself. So Dr. Saunders, please, please introduce yourself. Thank you, Justin, and thank you, Joe. I am super excited to be here. I was reluctant 
to um, do this. I am the type of professional that likes to sit back and let others take the spotlight while I um, puppeteer from the back. No, um, but I am excited about this because it's a topic that I enjoy. I'm a behavior analyst. Um, first and foremost, but I'm also the executive clinical director of an organization in Connecticut. We serve as kids from birth all the way up to 21. Um, I've been put in lots of different leadership supervisory positions throughout my career um, and am currently the president of Connecticut ABA, um, which is very exciting for me to do. I also am teaching, uh, I teach part-time um, at Southern Connecticut State University in their um, special education program. So uh, lots of areas for me to work on this, this topic in different capacities. Is that enough or do I need to talk about more? <laughs> Would you like me to talk about when I started in behavior analysis? <laughs> I, I thought it was wonderful, but I mean, I love hearing about you. So continue to talk as much as you want. I kind of like to know when you started behavior analysis. Do you want to know? No, 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 um, no, 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 no. You need to, unless you want to share it, uh, I think I think it's fine. I mean, well, well, I think we'll talk a little bit about that tonight. Is it ties into this this topic? I think a lot. Um, it, it, you know, getting put into these different roles and positions throughout your career, um, understanding how to be a good supervisor happens with that. So we'll sure. get into that. We'll talk about my infancy and when Justin was my TA back in, at UMass Amherst. You know, speaking of topics, you, you suggested what the title is for this rant, which typically our, our guests give us lots of input on what the titles are going to be. Uh, you suggested clinical supervision. Are you a supervisor, mentor, case manager, trainer, or just directing the technician? Uh, I was wondering to open things up and get us started, would you like to unpack any of that or any of those terms as it would relate to what you would like to talk about today? Yeah, I think um, the reason is because we're put in these positions. So when you graduate or you get your master's in behavior analysis now, right, we're, we're, we're becoming immediately sitting for our exams, field work supervision has happened prior to that. Um, and then you, you start you get your, your BCBA certification, and then you start supervising um, clinically. I'm calling it clinical supervision to differentiate it from field work supervision, which I is someone supervising um, someone, someone else who's going to be a professional behavior analyst. Um, so you're automatically supervising this client, right? So you're case managing, you're wanting to see this child make progress over time. Um, and then you're also supervising the, or directing the technician, which is the provider, the ABA therapist, who's providing most of the services to the child. So you're wearing all of these different hats. Um, and, you know, when I was in my doctoral program, I, my research focus was on this topic of, you know, what does this mean to be a clinical supervisor? How do you navigate, um, you know, all of the different things that you have to do when you're supervising a program. It's not just, I'm a supervisor, it's I'm a supervisor, now what? There's so many different things. I've gotta be a mentor to that person, that technician. I've got to um, make sure that they're implementing the treatment to fidelity. I've got to also at the same time, make sure that my client is making progress or the child is making progress and make sure that the family is learning and I'm training the family and they understand the programs that we're working on. And so there's all of these things as a clinical supervisor, someone who's providing um, 
I don't know, supervision to a child's case, case management, um, all of these different components. And we have this supervision um, training that, that we do, but most of it is how do, how do we train new, new, new us, right? New replicated behavior analysts. But really we should be looking at how are we supervising these technicians and is there some sort of structure to that? So that's what, that's what that means. My, that's my winded rant on that. <laughs> Uh, that that was a great way to start off. And I think one thing that that's coming across and what you're saying with being a clinical supervisor is there's so much that goes into it, right? It's, it's not easy. And, and something that I'm concerned with is just the amount of new BCBAs that are out, that are coming about and mm -hmm. that they go right into a supervision role and that they're, they're becoming clinical supervisors after you know one year of experience or, or supervised training experience, mm -hmm. I'm wondering if, if it was up to you. Like, what would it take? When is someone ready? What are the prerequisites? Just all that stuff. Um, yeah, you know, I think we speak. You know, you know, I feel the same way. I, th I think we're not setting up our clinicians for success. Um, one of the things when I so my research study was was great for me. I liked it a lot because it, it brought out um, when we did the social validity check. So essentially afterwards, I asked the supervisor who had been a practicing um, behavior analyst for a couple of years at that point. Um, all of my all of my behavior analysts had gone through this training. I basically provided them with training on how to provide clinical supervision. And then they went out and provided that clinical su supervision following the model that I had designed. And then I asked the BCBA afterwards, um, you know, was this meaningful to you? What did you know? What did you get out of it? And and he said to me, um, you know, for me, I knew all of those things. I knew how to provide behavior skills training. I needed. I knew I needed to incorporate behavior skills training. For example, I knew all of the things, but I didn't know how to structure my supervision. I was just pulling. Um, all, you know, every supervisory experience is so different. There's no structure, there's no, so for me to answer that, I think that we need to have these competencies. Um, we need to, when in the supervisory package that we, I did, which was Denny Reed and, co Reed and colleagues 2011 um, supervision curriculum, we used that. Part of it was actually going after someone attends these tra this training, which is a several day training with lots of different modules, role play and all of that. Um, you make sure they, they meet the competency in all of the different areas before they can supervise. So I, I went out and observed them. They, they met the competencies within the setting. And then I observed the behavior analyst in a real setting, made sure he met the competencies. And then I had him verbally tell me what he did, what he didn't. So I think it comes down to, we're just expecting behavior analysts to have this magically have the skills and apply because there's all of these different strategies that maybe they've been trained in, but we're not measuring their competencies. We're expecting them to measure competencies of their technicians, um, but we're not checking in to make sure they can do it. It's this expectation and we're not, I mean, even in programs and I know lots, I teach in a program, I don't know that this is happening. You know, that's not part of it. It's like, as soon as they're graduating, not only are they supervising clinically, they're supervising other future behavior analysts. And I know there's a shift to change that, but yeah, I feel the same way. It's concerning. I think that the start 
is to mandate that there's a competency check before they're supervising, mandate that you're out there observing over time, seeing that they can implement these things. How do they have a conversation? How are they setting up their sessions um, with the families? I think it it's wonderfully illustrates that we have systems in place to test knowing that, but not necessarily knowing how. Uh, like I might be able to tell you how to change the oil in my car. That doesn't mean that I also have the skills to change the oil in my car. Uh, so I think what we have in our field is a series of contingencies that test to make sure you know how to talk about something. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're competent in actually doing it. Uh, and I think what you said really speaks to that. Do you suggest any, since there aren't systems in place to test for that competency before someone might be hired in as a supervisor, are, are there certain uh, repertoires that you would suggest for testing for before you would put someone in that role so you know what you would need to train on? Wow, that's a tough one. There's so many different components to supervision because you need to, when you're supervising, there, you know, obviously we have this huge burnout in our field with our, especially our technician level level staff, there's a lot of turnover, right? So part of being a good supervisor isn't just knowing technically how to apply behavior analysis, how to look for fidelity and treatment, how to create pro programs that kids are gonna learn with, right? And make sure that staff are implementing reinforcement strategies, correct, all of that. Beyond all of that, you also need to have these uh, soft skills, we'll call them whatever. You need to understand um, the level of burnout and have an established relationship or be able to establish relationships and rapports um, with the staff. Uh, Gibson, um, I don't know if you read the Gibson and all study in 2009, um, talked about that. Even just perceived support from the supervisor showed a, 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 you know improvements in satisfaction of that technician level staff. So I don't know how you, that's, it's experience. You can't just measure it. It's, it's over time. And so you are not going to be the greatest clinical supervisor your first three years, your first five years. I don't think we can bottle that and, and say, I need to measure your competency. I think we need you to have five years, 10 years experience. And then we know you're a great supervisor and then you mentor someone else. And so I, you know, at, at our organization, we have mentors, um, supervisors who can always mentor. We also have, you know, constantly we're meeting with our behavior analyst and checking in and saying, okay, you have more experience. Let's all talk about this as a team. So it's, it's, I don't know that you could, I could say, let's bottle this one thing and that's how you know, or you can measure. There are so many different components. Um, I do think it comes down to at least initially if you, you need to give or mandate that there's some sort of structure to supervision so that every time there's a supervisory experience, the supervisor, for example, has um, met with the supervisee and said, you know, um, this is what I'm supervisee by the, the technician. When I come out next week, I'm going to work on this with you. Are you okay with that? Um, part of my session will be me showing you, part of my session will be, and going back to that culture, of, um, but like, I think we need to initially, at least in the first three years, there needs to be mandated structured support with an attached mentor, a supervisor who has a lot of experience, who has these skills that they've been able to tie together. Um, it, it can't happen out of school, but you also can't learn without doing. So you need that support. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I was so, when I, 
got when I got out of when I graduated with my undergrad degree at UMass Amherst with Dr. Justin Leaf, um, uh, I went right into working at the May Institute, and I was just hungry for learning. And I was this, you know, I just wanted to learn from the BCB, the behavior analysts. Um, my mentor at um, the May Institute mentors many were amazing, and it was just about you know, the culture was to just like learn and, and kind of su support each other and, and all the different levels of supervisors did that. And I just feel like I might, am I getting ranty? Uh-oh. I worry that- You're in the perfect spot for that though. <laughs> I know, I worry. I just worry that our field has shifted so much into seeing supervision. This, this kind of goes back to another reason why my topic is what it is. Seeing clinical supervision as, as uh, you you go in and you're billing for this time that you you have a unit of billable supervision time, instead of seeing supervision as this holistic, I'm here, call me, we'll talk, we're gonna talk outside of session. When I come back to session, I'm, this is what we're gonna work on. This is how we're gonna, I'm here. It's not, it's a mentor. You're mentoring that person, that technician, you're training them. Um, all of those things. And I don't think we can bottle like, okay, you can't supervise until you have this. I think you can't supervise independently until you have this number of years experience. Ranty, sorry, soapbox. Yeah, that was, that was like, uh, I guess I should retire and it could be Rance with Joe and Saunders instead. Uh, <laughs> hey, I'm part of the theme song now, so yeah. I'm... <laughs> You have a sub theme song. You're not the main, the main not the main title. Just all right, theme. all right. Our, our lead singers or backup singers aren't here okay. today. I'll take it. Um, you know, I think I, I don't. I'm not blaming the supervisors. I don't know who I'm blaming. I, I yeah. think part of what you're saying is I've seen a shift somewhere where it seems like it's become more about making as much money as you can, uh, billing as much as you can. And so I think we, you get a dilution of supervision there. You try to up the cases, you try to get as many billable hours as possible. And so you're, so you're not getting the quality uh, supervision that you once got. Um, and I think people are going in it as a profession to make as much money as they can, which is nothing wrong with that versus what you're yeah. saying, learning over time and paying your dues. Like you're saying it takes five, 10 years. I don't think people want to wait that long anymore. I think people want to become supervisors day one. Uh, out of out of organizations, and I understand why. But but the the other thing you said is uh, changing the culture, mandating a structure. I just wonder how you would go about that for organizations who are starting up, organizations where you're trying to improve and implement quality supervision and mentorship. What what advice would you give them? Honestly, I I mean, Reed and colleagues have been doing this for a long time, and they you know they their curriculum for um, promoting uh, workplace enjoyment and su supervision, um, that is a nice, it's a very straightforward, nice tool to start. It, it, it takes, um, it sort of ties in all of these evidence-based strategies that we already know, and it lays it out to provide um, structure to how you can supervise. It wasn't designed for behavior analysis. It wasn't designed specifically for the autism population, for example, but the, it ties it together in a way that for newer organizations or organizations that don't know where to begin, 
it's a good place to start. Here are the, this is the bare minimum of what you need to know before you can supervise is what I'm, you know, where, where I see it. Um, and then it requires you to meet those competencies. It requires the trainer, the person who provided that training to follow you, to go out to you, you know, to, to be part of your, you know, let's say you're, I'm mentoring you and you're out with me on a session. I'm going to have you practice some of those strategies while we're, while we're working on that. Um, so it's a good place to start. There are tools out there, I think already. I don't like curriculum type things and I'm not saying that's what we should do as a field, but I do think that um, we have, that is an opportunity for us to tie in what we, you know, all of those evidence-based strategies into one as a, as a bare minimum, not top of the line, like as a baseline, like let's start here, um, so that you have something. Do you, so based on that, I feel like that's the exact same thing that we put forth certification for. It's meant mm -hmm. to be, uh, the minimum standards. Like that's, yeah. That's what certification was designed for, right? Uh, but there's been financial contingencies and other contingencies that have kind of made those minimum standards the gold standard as it relates to things like third-party billing, insurance reimbursement, and et cetera. Uh, so we've had to raise those minimum standards. Do you have any concern that going starting with just a bare minimum will result yeah, in the same thing? Yes, I do. I know, um, but we don't have anything, right? So uh, right now, it, it, there's so much variability in the way, there's no, there's no structure, there's this variability in the way, there's no sim systems in place. And I think organizations need, what I'm saying is it doesn't matter what system, you need a system because there needs to be a way to have, to check for fidelity, to check, to make sure that we're implementing our supervision strategies appropriately, you know, you could have a, a supervisor who comes in, you know, clinical supervisor, they, they just check the programs and they're looking through the book and they're checking the data, right? Then you have another supervisor who's just really hands-on. They come in and they're going to do some role play with you and hand, you know, practice. And then you have this other supervisor who's just like giving you feedback the whole time. So there's so much variability and it's like, all of those are decent strategies, but how do you tie those in by making sure that you're considering, um, the factors that you need are, is the supervisee learning from you? Um, is the child making progress? Um, you know, all, all of those, that's the structure that needs to be put in and what tool you use doesn't matter. And that's what my research shows. It doesn't really matter what the tool is. It's, you need a tool and you need to, you need to structure it in a way that you can measure and see whether or not there's, these things are being met. Um, addressing the turnover, making sure that you're incorporating satisfaction, which job satisfaction, which is, you know, without fidelity, if, if, a, if a behavior technician doesn't know what they're doing and they're doing it wrong, they're going to, that's why we have so much burnout. They're not getting supervisory support. Um, and I do think that there needs to be some ownership on the organization level. Our organization knows that we're not going to be maxing out billable time for our behavior analysts. Some of their time is going to be outside of, it's going to be non-billable and that has to be okay, right? You can't, <laughs> It can't just be about that. Otherwise, what are we doing here? You know? So, I don't know if I answered your question, but now I'm feeling ranty. Like I feel like I'm in the vibe. But yeah. yeah. So let's 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 get you out of a ranty mood, even though I'm with Justin and Joe. Okay. And tell me, you've talked about it a little bit, hinted at it, and as part of your, your dissertation, the tool. Just tell mm -hmm. us what's in that tool. What what would you what components are in the tool? And if you change that tool since your dissertation? What components would you have in a yeah. tool? 
Um, so it incorporates how to give feedback, um, you know, informal, formal feedback, uh, incorporates um, how to teach, he, uh, Reed and colleagues call it what is called the job duties checklist, which is basically a program for um, what the expectation is. And what I learned from that was um, there are, you know, you, you can have an understanding of how to implement reinforcement and do it at the, a proper schedule and all that, but there's these nuanced behaviors. And that's the part of supervision that is so important and missed. So what the job duties checklist does is it sort of breaks down um, what the therapist is supposed to be implementing, but incorporates like those nuanced things that you miss that are specific to the client, not just knowing how to, how to do, how to do shaping, but how to do shaping with Joe, right. And how to implement shaping when I'm working with Joe specifically. Um, so there's, that was one of the biggest tools. I think that is one of the biggest tools that I think is really useful. Um, behavior skills training, uh, it shows you how to do role play, reverse, all of those kinds of things. It's, it's a lot, it, there's a lot of components to it, um, which are really great, but it's not to say that that's the only tool that should be used. Uh, the one thing that is stressed in it, which I think is missed by a lot of clinical supervisors, and this is just anecdotal, um, is that the component that we need to ensure that we're incorporating job satisfaction with the people that we're supervising. Do Are they happy with what they're doing? And are we making sure and checking in with them being happy? And in order to do that, we can't just go in and dictate to our supervisees. We can't say, okay, tomorrow you're gonna be working on toileting with so-and-so. No, it needs to be like, what are your goals for working with so-and-so? That's my client's name, by the way. I do have a client named so-and-so, um, but it, it is, what are your goals for working with him? My, let's say your, are your, you know, your goals are to get him to be, help him to be more independent going to the toilet, right? My goals are to help you learn how to help him get to the toilet. So how can we get there together? Would you want me to show you, would you want me to be the one that implemented initially? Would you want to, you know, um, review the treatment plan separately outside of um, this session? How do you want to learn? And making them a part of it is a big part. And that was, that was definitely a huge takeaway from that um, tool that Reed and colleagues um, laid out. But I don't, again, I don't think it's the only tool and I'm not here to sell it. I have no stake in the game. Uh, I just think that, um, you know, the key factors that are most important are you know, structuring your supervision session so that it, it has a begin a be clear beginning and end that, you know, communicating with the person that you're supervising in a way that incorporates and involves them in the session or makes them feel a part of it. Um, the work we do is really hard. So we need to acknowledge that um, it, we should be, I don't know. Those are, those are kind of the things that I thought were really helpful. Um, and it was a long time ago. It's like, everyone's talking about kindness and compassion in our field. And I feel like that's been a part of a lot of things. Um, and I'm glad that people are talking about it now, but it is not new. I feel our, you know, we have been doing this for a long time and, you know, Reed and colleagues have clearly been doing it. They've been talking about this forever, 30 years or 40 years. I think lots of wonderful points there. One of, one of my favorite things that a supervisor asked me, what seems like ages ago when I was working direct uh, for a lot of my time was, how do you like your feedback? Uh, yeah. And it gave me an opportunity to say, please don't sandwich things for me. Just if I need to fix something, just tell me how to fix it uh, so we can move on. 
uh, I, I don't need to have, this is one thing you're doing good, this is something you need to work on, and this is another thing you're doing good. Uh, and that works great for other people, and they can ask for that, but uh, it, it definitely wasn't for me. And I love the point about compassion. It's been around for a long time. Uh, I mean, if you go back to Wolf, Risley, and Mies, the word love uh, is back in there in 63. So it's it's something that our field, I'm like a like you, I'm glad that we're talking about it more now. Um, but I, I hope that people will also go back and read some of the previous work that has been done, like reading colleagues uh, that have been talking about it for a while now. I'm going to use this as an opportunity to pivot to the questions because uh, we do have some coming in. And I'm going to modify some of the language on this first one uh, uh -oh. for discussion sake. Uh, no, it's, it, I'm, I'm hopefully making it. Uh, easier to handle. Uh, we've already kind of talked about some things that new BCBAs who are becoming supervisors right after certification or right after school should be considering. Are there additional things you think new BCBAs who are opening their own businesses should consider as well? Oh. And I can talk longer to give you some time to collect your wow. thoughts on this. Um, as it relates to, let me see if I understand the question. As it relates to this, as it relates to supervising or developing supervisory protocols or just a blanket, ask me the question again. <laughs> I mean, I, th I think let's restrict it to um, <laughs> clinical supervision. So, I mean, we've been talking about what are some things to consider for new, new BCBAs that are getting put in supervisory positions, uh, some things to consider with respect to that. Would yeah. you say that there's additional things or similar things for BCBAs that are gonna be opening their own businesses? So I don't know that, I'm not gonna be someone that you're gonna like answering this, I think. I don't want, I, I don't think new BCBA should open their own businesses. Um, so I don't know how to, oh, sorry, good. Then I, I'm not to say that you can't, you, I actually don't think you need to be a BCBA. Um, I don't know that the certification, but I think a behavior analyst or um, if I think you have, there's a lot of other skills that need to happen and maybe you have those, maybe you're a business person and you have those skills. So I'm not, I don't want to discount that. It depends on your, your, your experience. But if we're just talking new BCBAs, sort of newly certified, give yourself a chance to really learn from others. I feel like um, that is one thing that I've been very lucky in my career to have had the opportunity to work with the different um, folks that I have worked with. Uh, and I don't own my own business for a very good reason, because I, I like, I, I, it's not my thing. I run, I run a business and I'm a part of a team, but when you get out there on your own, you need to be really ready. You need to surround, if I'm going to give you tips in your head, strong and doing it, hire some really experienced people to surround you with, because you're working with people's babies. And I say this a lot and my, my team always looks at me like, Ugh, and I, I don't care. Babies are 20. I have a 21 year old son. He's my baby. You're working with people's children for the most part, if you're going into awesome services. Um, and you need to be very, very ready for that. And just getting certified does not make you ready for that. Um, and it doesn't make you ready to create these great systems for supervision. So I, I probably not the popular answer, maybe not what you wanted to hear, but my suggestion would be to find a really great company to work with for um, at least five years to get some, some experiences under your belt and then find a great team. Um, people who have st some strong skills to support you that things that you don't that complement you. 
Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I understand the 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 wanting, the desire to open a business uh, and start your own company, but I think it's foolish for new people to go in there. There's, it's just not about supervision. There's so much more you need to to know about. You you need to have a great understanding of curriculum and how to be, make the best curriculum. You have to have an understanding of billing and the billing process, legal process. You need to understand how to provide quality intervention. So you're providing uh, good intervention to kids versus just run-of-the-mill intervention that unfortunately so many companies um, have done. And yeah. so, you, and so I, you know, you just don't have the experience a few years out of graduate school or a few years into it to do it. Uh, you know, my wife and I do own a, a, a separate company and even then it, it's small. We've kept it small just because we're not trying to grow and, it was in, and we're serving certain areas. So I think, I think it's scary when we see people two years, three years removed, um, putting a shingle up and opening their own business. I think it's scary when you hear stories of people not providing quality intervention or good level of training or good level of supervision and they own a company somewhere. Um, that's just not in the best interest of our clients. So I love what you said. I think it's perfect. Uh, I think it's something we really have to be careful of if we're going to survive as a field of making sure that companies aren't there when they're when are not established, when they're not providing good intervention, good supervision, good training. Um, yeah. That's my, my little rant. Um, so yeah, here's, here's another question from the audience members, um, non-modified. How do you suggest new BCBAs go about identifying or connecting with mentors? Oh, so I think that that is a great question. Um, and right up my street, I'm British. I like to use street instead of alley. Um, our organ CTABA is actually developing a mentorship connection, um, program. There are other organizations out there like CASP, um, where you can, you know, seek members, uh, mentorship. If your organization is a member, you can go through those avenues. Uh, but you can also, you know, I don't know if you work in an organization yourself, seek them internally. Um, and I can tell you that most senior behavior analysts are going to be very happy to talk to you if you reach out to them. There's never been a time when I've emailed someone who's written an article that I thought was really interesting. Um, or in, when I was doing my dissertation, I reached out to um, Ellie Kasemi and uh, it was one of her papers that had sort of started me on that road and immediately got back to me. And we had this great conversation and maybe we don't have a long-term mentorship uh, relationship, but she mentored me through that piece. Um, and so I think that it's about putting yourself out there we are, we're natural teachers, right? I think that's why we do this job. Um, maybe I'm, maybe I'm overgeneralizing, but we want to help others. We want to. So if you're, if you reach out to another behavior analyst and make that connection and introduce yourself, that's how you as a new BCBA can, our behavior analyst, I should say, um, can, you know, get those mentor mentorship relationships. I have mentors still, um, you know, I reach out to them often. And um, I, I think even just with you folks, reach out to you guys on certain things and vice versa. It's, it's lateral, it's hierarchical, it's, it's all over the place, but we should, we should be doing that. Um, it's one of the things when I said, you know, when I first started, I've been doing this for a while, it's like 2004 or something. Um, when I first started, it was like, we were hungry for it and we, everyone was happy to 
oblige and give it like Alan Harjack and give me that, you know, like, here you go. And I'm excited for you. And I want that back so bad in this field. And I know that we do have it in some circles, but I want it to be the culture again. And so we, the only way we can make it the culture is by doing so reach out to those people and just make it happen. They're going to talk to you. I can't support that sentiment enough. Uh, because as someone who, you know, researches and, and publishes, uh, like sometimes you have to reach out to other people to talk to them about their research. Mm-hmm. And um, coming from a person who publishes and puts themselves out there, if someone reaches out to me and asks me about my research because they read something, it absolutely makes my day. Yeah. Uh, and I think that will happen for anyone else that you reach out to, too, because I, I consider myself pretty, pretty low on, on the list of the names that are out there in our field. But I imagine if you reach out to the Greg Hanleys of our field, you're going to make their day uh, it, and anybody else that you would reach out to as well. So I don't be hesitant to do that and, and don't be shy about it as well. I mean, I understand uh, being at conferences and sometimes that can be a little bit unnerving to do that. But sending an email is pretty easy uh, these days. It's like sending a text as opposed to having to make a phone call. Like, so it kind of makes takes away some of that uh, worry if you're going to reach out to someone to, to discuss those things. I guess I want to add something, some things with it is I think reaching out, yeah, you should do them at conferences, but be careful when you're reaching out to them at conferences. Like I've seen some people go up to like the Greg Hanley's, the Pat Fryman's, uh, the Linda LeBlanc's of the world right before they're giving a talk. Yeah. And so they're not going to be like really receptive during that time because they're about to speak. And so just be careful of the timing. They, they do want to talk to you, but just be aware of what they're, what they're doing. I think the other thing is um, it's a constant you should be seeking mentorship, no matter how experienced you are in the field, no matter how many years you've done, we all rely on someone uh, or, or multiple people. So even if you are the greatest supervisor in the world or the greatest business owner, you, you fall back on, on colleagues. So this seeking out mentorship should be uh, an ongoing process uh, throughout, throughout your career. And then the final one is, I think it's finding the right mentor, which is also like who's fit for you and, and what your goals are and that they're caring about your goals, but also not finding mentors who are not really doing quality work or and maybe just saying they're doing quality work, but not really. You're wanting to get those mentors who, who are implementing quality ABA, who are making a meaningful difference. So yeah. I, I had to get that no, back into. I think that that's a really good point. And I would add to, well, one, at the conferences, the best time to, for me, when I'm presenting at a conference, I definitely don't want to talk before I get anxiety. Everyone in this room knows that. But if I get an email afterwards, which I, tip, I usually do, I love it. And I'm like, oh, let's talk about this. Let's have a conversation. So when, when presenters say, here's my contact, they actually do want you to contact them. They're not just saying that. That's, that's the truth. Um, so you do it that way because that usually opens the dialogue. And then, you know, it, it, part of it is also saying, you know, why you're interested in their work and making it meaningful to them too, because you want to have a, a genuine relationship there. Uh, I, I love this. And I'd add that one thing that I think was very helpful for me to be able to go up and talk to some people at conferences is practicing your elevator speech. 
uh, like your five minute elevator speech. I love that I had supervisors and mentors in, in my academic training that made me work on that, made me practice it. It's like, if you get stuck in an elevator uh, with Pat Fryman on, you're on the 30th floor and you have from the 30th floor to the first floor to give him your pitch to say, hey, this is what I wanna talk to you about. This is what I'd like to collaborate on or uh, you know, help me with this or you know, provide me supervision or your guidance here you have those 30 floors to do it. So that's that's where the elevator speech comes from. And just, it makes you be parsimonious and it makes you be able to talk about the things that are gonna be essential uh, for you to be able to talk about. And I'll use that as a segue to our next question. Uh, how do you think university programs can support building skills and preparing candidates during their fieldwork supervision? Um. That's a good question. I think that they need, it, again, it goes back to these, this competency piece, right? It's not just teaching. It's not just doing role plays. It's then where's the competency component, which is challenging with supervision programs. I think there needs to be a real world connection with organizations when um, providers or when students are in their field work, not just doing practicums through a university. I think having them in a setting where they're, you know, maybe they're learning and they're, you know, they've got the structured classroom learning and then they're doing their supervision sessions and then they're out in the practice in, in a real world setting, meeting a competency prior to graduating a university. Um, I think that that is, we need to, and we need to, it shouldn't just be this clinical supervision. I mean, it shouldn't just be fieldwork supervision teaching. I don't know how many people have come to trainings or presentations that I've done where I ask the audience, I say, how many of you have gone to training on how to, on supervision? And like the whole audience, and this is behavior analyst, they all raise their hand and they said, I've been to a supervision training before. And then I say, how many of you have gone to a supervision training um, that's specific to how you supervise a, a client, supervise a case, clinical supervision? one or two people raise their hand. That's not being taught. And why are we teaching people who haven't even graduated how to supervise? It doesn't matter. Like let's teach them how to clinic, like provide clinical skills in a, and, and clinical supervision to behavior technicians because that's gonna be their job. Again, I ranted, sorry. I get, I get so emotional about this. I care a lot about this topic, so. It's good, it's good that you care. And and I think you're making excellent points. Um, I think with the university training, I love the competency part of it. I think everything should be performance-based and not answers on a multiple choice test or how good you could write up about what quality supervision is. Uh, that's for a different skill set. Yeah. But it, you need multiple exemplars, don't you not? Like you need to right. know how to train multiple people in multiple ways versus multiple ways that they present and interact with you. Uh, uh, supervisees who are more difficult, supervisees who are more easy, supervisees who are resistant to feedback, supervisees who overgeneralize feedback. And, and I think, I mean, I could be wrong, but I think that's what's really needed is that you need this tons and tons of experience handling multiple cases that you're going to be part of. Mm -hmm. It goes to a, we shouldn't be supervising independently until we have experience. It's exactly what you can't, I mean, university programs can only get you so far, uh, but I do think we would come a long way if, if we incorporated that, at least the competency piece where, we, you know, there is this opportunity for multiple exemplars, at least to get a little bit under your belt. 
But again, you're going to need five years experience. At I, I go with this five years arbitrarily. I don't know. It could take you 15 years. It really doesn't matter, but yeah. you get bumps and bruises along the way, right? We get scars, we get bruises. That's how we get better. We, we, you know, that that's the only way. Yeah. Well, and I think it's, it's useful too to not just think about what university programs can do to support building these skills. It's what can you do to look at university programs that you might want to go to that can provide you a wide variety of experiences so you can get that multiple exemplar training right. while you're at that university. And some universities, uh, because of where they are, or limited resources might not be able to provide you as many as others. So I think it's something to consider before you go into a university program as well. Yeah, it's a good point. This is such a fun conversation. I love it. It's great. Hey. Are you glad? Aren't you glad you signed up for Rants with Justin and Joe? Any opportunity to hang out with you guys, I'm glad about. So I, I guess with that conversation, before we go back to an audience uh, member's question, um, is do you think the standards then need to change? Right now, it's 1,500 hours to get your BCBA, um, and I think that goes up to 2,000 hours pretty soon. Um, do you think it should be more? Do you think we should be setting that bar a little higher? to help ensure, I mean, I agree with you, it's not 10 or 15 years experience that you need, but should we be setting that bar just a, a tad bit higher um, so that uh, we're ensuring that people have the amount of hours that is more likely correlates with good supervision? Yeah, I think one of the things that we do, we, we're we so great, like ABA is great and our field is great and we have this wonderful science that we are able to use every day and we change lives, right? But why do we not look at what other fields do really well, which is like fields like social work, for example, social workers will graduate with their master's degree and they have a, a license, but they aren't able to practice without being supervised for a certain number. I think it's a year to two years. They have to accumulate a number of hours and they have very close supervision under someone's license. Um, I believe occupational therapists have a model like that. We should be we should be modeling after those since we're going to be doing a tiered model of care and we're, we have these all of these really um, vulnerable people that we serve. We should be following some of the other human service um, fields that do this where they require you know, for example, I got my master's degree in, in um, counseling actually and, and applied behavior analysis. And so I was going to, I decided not to because it was too daunting, um, going to become a licensed um, counselor while also getting my board certification as behavior analyst. I changed my mind, long story, whatever. Um, but when I graduated, I started a supervision for my license. You don't start your supervision until you graduate with your license in counsel or your master's in counseling. And that was going to be of a a long time, uh, you know, a very daunting amount of, of supervision. I think it was 2000 hours or something. Um, and that that's what you do. Right. And so I think to improve our field, it would be amazing and wonderful. And I know there's financial implications. If we could have this preliminary certification where you have to practice under someone who has um, more experience for a certain amount of, of years. I mean, uh, uh, hours, years, however, before you can then sit for a second level of licensure or certification. But that's aspirational. I would love it. And I think other fields have done it well. Um, you can still, so it's, it, it takes away that sort of, you know, if you're looking at the financial implications, 
you can still have this person practice. They just need to be supervised, right? And they don't, they can't say that they're, qual, you know, it, you can't say they're a BCBA and all BCBAs parents think, oh, you're a BCBA. That must mean you know everything. No, I'm a, I'm a BC assistant or whatever. I don't know. I'm, a, I'm this level. I'm not this level yet, right? So here's a question from the audience. Um, and for those of you who are listening on the podcast, please join our audience so you can ask your questions to our, our expert speakers or on, who are on rants with Justin and Joe. How do you suggest that behavior analysts navigate the amount of information on social media oh, and deciding what is appropriate or misinformation or poor guidance? Oh, something you probably have to deal with as a supervisor, as a mentor. Is... Yeah, well, let me read this question again. I got nervous when I saw. Yeah, well, how do you uh, how do you suggest give you that... some time to think about that question? I, I I think it's a wonderful question because I think given how difficult it is for some people to find supervision, I think a lot of people are seeking alternative ways to do that. And one of the ways might be seeking information or or posting or asking for people for feedback online. So I think you're running into a lot more behavior analysts that need supervision that are moving to social media or other platforms to try to access that. Right, yeah, I mean, I do think that there needs to be more discussion in organizations with behavior analysts, especially newer behavior analysts about social media etiquette. I think state chapters can be reaching out to talk about um, these kinds of things. And I, I mean, we know we're not supposed to be, you know, asking people to tell us how to treat a client on social media. And we see it all the time, right? Um, I just think we need to, you know, supervisors should be teaching their supervisees not to be engaging in this kind of behavior and not, I don't know how else to address it, just other than you shouldn't be doing it. Um, and if you do it, we need to go to our code, our ethics code, and and make sure that we're staying, we're aligning with that code when we do engage in these, in this dialogue. That was a hard one, guys. You threw me. I, the audience doesn't play around here, here at Rancid, Seriously. Justin and Joe. They, they don't hold back at all. Can I just say one more thing? Just yep. to, to speak to the poor guidance, um, we should, when we see this, we have an obligation as behavior analysts to point this out. If we're seeing someone you know, providing poor guidance our misinformation on social media, and we're seeing other behavior analysts who may not be as experienced sort of eating it up or, or taking, we, we have an obligation, um, an ethical obligation because of our ethics code, if we're a board certified behavior analyst. But we also have a moral obligation, I think, to say, hey, that's not actually right. That's not actually true. So let me show you where you can get the truth or let me provide you with some, some more information that might make you think about this a little bit differently. Um, and so I do think if you're a supervisor or if you're a behavior analyst or BCBA who you and you see this happening, you really should be engaging with it in a way that's professional, um, but also, you know, rec directly address it. So if I'm hearing you right, Saunders, not just staying quiet yes. when it's happening, which is the advice that some might give, is yeah. that people are just allowed to say whatever they're wanting. And as behavior analysts, you should just essentially be quiet and listen to it and not, not say what's right. Is I that think that's correct. It's, if you're seeing, if, if I'm reading this like poor guidance or misinformation, absolutely not. And you recognize it. Um, I do think there's a way to acknowledge that 
you know, and not be dismissive. Someone, that person may have had poor supervision or poor guidance and they may not know. So there's a way not to like discount the person's opinion if it is an opinion, but if it's false, we should, we should be able to, and we should be promoting a culture of professionals who um, are able to say and handle hearing, hey, by the way, did you know that that actually isn't true? I'm not sure where you got, this is where, this is what, you know, the most recent information is on that. Um, and we should be able to handle that. I think I miss the days when we could handle that because that's how I started. I mean, people, I remember when I was working at the May Institute, when I first started, it wasn't about like my feelings ever getting hurt. The, my supervisors would come in and they would tell me exactly what I was doing wrong and I would just fix it. And so I think we should be modeling that same thing on social media. If we see someone's doing something wrong, we should be able to say, hey, I'm not sure if you realized, but this is the most recent information. Um, you know, I just want to make sure and get that out there. And if you are interested in this question, I want to make sure you have all the information you can. We should be able to do that in a professional, respectful way, but we're also obligated to do it, I think. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think it's unfortunate that we, for some reason on social media, we've gotten to this situation to where if you say, I like apples, you're immediately hit with comments about why you hate pineapples. Yeah. It's like, well, that's, but uh, I think that's besides the point. I love the idea of the culture. And I think if you're a leader, if you're a supervisor of a supervisor, if you're a supervisor of other people that might be implementing intervention, I think it's developing a relationship and a culture that allows conversations to happen. Like, hey, I, I saw this on social media and I would like to talk to you about it. Uh, so that you can also address those things before anyone is responding or anything like that. And you can have an open line of discussion about, hey, this seems like it's difficult. I'm not sure how to handle this professionally or if I should handle it professionally, how might I go about doing this? And I think without setting up a relationship like that with your either your supervisors, your employees um, or whatever that relationship might be, I think it might make it more difficult to navigate these difficult things that seem to be continually coming up online. Right. So with that, I'd like to give you, I think we have time for one last question. Uh, and I saved this one for you for the end. Oh no. <laughs> Where are my cupcakes? No, um, it's what do you think is the biggest problem facing ABA as it relates to clinical supervision? So if you had to pick one thing or, or a couple of things that you think are, are the biggest problems or biggest problem that might be facing ABA, just as it relates to clinical supervision, what might you say that is or would be? I think it's inexperienced supervisors without mentor, not having mentors who can support them. That's probably the biggest problem. And it, ha it, it, it you know, the whole, and I know everyone says this at every talk, but if 50% of our community has not been certified for more than, what is it, five years, um, then that means that 50% of our clinical supervisors have very limited experience. And so that is a huge problem in ABA. And um, I, I am very concerned about it. And I, you know, I think that we need to be talking about this. I love this. I think we need to, you know, move in the direction of like everyone having the conversation, everyone talking about this inexperience thing. And it's coming up in more and more talks, which I like. Um, let's acknowledge it and let's address it. I think that's a great answer. And I think if, you know, if, if it's 50% is new to the field, it's not just us that needs to change it. It's the entities who are certifying or recognizing these new members need to probably up their standards 
uh, to help protect consumers from non-quality yeah. treatment. So Saunders, uh, Dr. Saunders, Dr. Melissa Saunders, however people, uh, other people call you, I just say Saunders. Um, it's been an honor having you on. I hope you liked uh, coming on to Rants with Justin and Joe. So uh, I, th I think you, uh, are you presenting your data anywhere? I am. Um, I'm doing a panel with uh, Missy Olive. Uh, we uh, will be doing it. Uh, a couple other folks are on our panel um, at ABBA. So hopefully you will join me and I will be presenting my data there. And I look forward to that. Yeah, I would suggest everyone going and seeing that uh, presentation virtually this year. Uh, because Melissa is not just coming on and giving her opinion, she has data to back up her opinion and through uh, empirical investigation and years of clinical experience and it does a great job. So thank you coming on. We will forgive you for never sending out the cupcakes that you promised us, okay. uh, which has been now like 13 months later. Uh, we're still waiting every day, but uh, thank you for all the work that you do to help improve the lives of your clients and the lives of your supervisees. And with that, I will let Joe say the boring part. Yeah, so if you want CEUs for this podcast uh, or this rants or any of the other rants, you can purchase or download that at www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast. You'll just need to keep track of the opening and closing word. The closing word for this rant is Welcher, W-E-L-C-H-E-R, Welcher. <laughs> And I would like to also thank Dr. S for being here with us today. Thank you so much. The, the opening and closing keywords made it worthwhile. So uh, in two weeks, we will be having another rants uh, with Justin Joe's session with uh, Dr. Amanda Kelly, AKA Behavior Babe. And so come to that. And uh, shameless plug, which I'm gonna be doing all the time now, is sign up for the APFCU library at $9.99 a month. You'll get a ton, just a ton of great learning opportunities. You'll fulfill all your CEUs. You'll get to go to Ask an Expert series. We'll, we'll have people like Mary Jane or Andy Bondi or BJ Freeman join us. Journal clubs where you have leading authors join us. It'll be a great time where we'll learn and improve the field together. So with that, goodbye from Rants with Justin and Joe's I was muted. Kidding. Joe. Joe. Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. Yeah. Joe. All right. Bye, everybody.